Hey, and welcome to the Scottsdale Podcast. We are currently in a series called, Did God Really Say? Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scottsdale Baptist Church. My name is Jeff and I'm one of the pastors here and it is a delight to gather with you today to worship our great God together, whether you're with us here uh, in our worship center, whether you're watching us online or whether you are still with us in our Crosspoint Center, we are so glad that each and every week you choose to join with us to learn and study God's word and to grow as disciples of Christ. And I'm excited today because we are starting a brand new series called Did God Really Say? Because in our culture, there are a lot of of words that are attributed to God uh, that maybe or maybe not things that he said. I mean, there are things that you find all over the place. They sound good. You find them on Christian t-shirts or just t-shirts in general. You find them on coffee mugs. You might see them on internet memes. You may have heard them on your children's favorite TV show or movie. May even be something that you hear in the life of the church. They sound good. They sound maybe even sometimes like scripture. I mean, In reality, if we started thinking about it, we would never buy into something. We would see the sinfulness of a statement that sounded something like this. If, doesn't matter, if you have to lie, cheat, steal, or kill, just succeed. If you heard that, your sinfulness detector would go up immediately, and you would say, there's no way that God really said that. But these statements are a little bit more subtle. They're a little bit more sweet to the palate. They're a little bit more easy for our sinfulness detector to overlook and for us to begin to embrace them ourselves and live as if they are true. The challenges for us as believers is the same that Eve faced in the garden because whenever we think about these questions, we recognize that they all trace their origin back to that that moment in the garden when Satan came to Eve and he said to her, Did God really say that? Did God really say that? So as we recognize from that point forward in all of history, God's been, uh, Satan's been twisting words. He's been twisting commands to make them suit a, a culture that was running away from God, not towards him. And so as believers in Christ, we need to know what those things are, and then we need to be able to address them in our own hearts, and then we also need to be able to help others around us to address things from a biblical perspective. So in this series, as we talk about did God really say, where where should we start? Well, because we want this to start on a high note, and because we don't want it to be too heavy, we thought it would be best to start where our culture always wants us to start. Our culture always wants us to start with happiness. So today we're going to talk about happiness. After all, Doesn't God just want you to be happy? And if you asked our culture, our culture would say a resounding yes. That's what God wants you to do. God wants you to be happy. Because in reality, appealing to your own personal happiness is really the greatest marketing tool of all time. Think about it for a minute. Parents, grandparents, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. You're going out to pick up stuff with your kids or grandkids. You're driving down the road, maybe on a long car trip, and then you hear in the background, little Johnny, little Susie, they say, Grandma, Grandpa, Mom, Dad, 
I'm hungry. You keep driving for a little bit, hoping that they'll just forget about it. But then after a little bit of time, their hunger turns to hanger. And then you hear them screaming from the background, I want food now. They start throwing stuff at you to get you to move a little bit quicker. And in your mind, you're just thinking, oh, where are the golden arches? Ronald McDonald has solved this problem for me. And what? A happy meal. A happy meal. He gives you everything that you need with a smile in the box to give to the the child in the back to make them happy. What about for our culture who who is living in a particular way and in their their, uh, jobs? Maybe they're discouraged at work. Maybe they had a hard day, a long day. They want to blow off some steam before they get home, before they have to go back through the, the routines of their everyday Our culture and restaurants and bars have created what to help them do that? A happy hour. It's a time where they can go and blow off the steam that they need to so they can be prepared to go home. Now, for those of us who don't drink, there's hope for us. You see, there are these two great chain restaurants that have helped us out in this. They have a happy hour at Sonic and at Taco Bell. So if you need your fix for happy hour, Go to one of those places during the happy or the happier hour in these cases, and you can be ready to face the challenges of the day. Did you know back in 2012, the United Nations actually started an international day of happiness, an international day of happiness. March the 20th is the international day of happiness. Sadly, last year, Just about that time, (laughs) one of the most unhappy years of our lives has occurred with COVID-19. Even our own Declaration of Independence helps us to see or drives our attention to these truths that we hold to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So if our culture says it's important, if the United Nations says that it's important, if our own founding documents say that it's important, then surely God says it's important, right? I'm gonna argue that he does, but in a very different way than our culture wants us to believe. Because here's the thing. Our culture seeks to provide a momentary adjustment in your circumstances so that you experience the feeling of happiness. But as we all know, our feelings can be manipulated, can't they? I can manipulate your your mood or your feelings mechanically. Now, this is where I'm going to need 100% participation here in our room, online, and in the Crosspoint Center. For the next 10 seconds, after I count to three, everybody in here is going to smile, okay? You're all going to smile on the count of three for 10 seconds, okay? You guys with me? Can I get an affirmation that we're all going to do this? All right. Hey, there we go. This is good. Okay. One, two, three. Everybody smile. I can tell some of you had done this in a while. It's okay. (laughs) 
All right, that's about 10 seconds, but I got the point across, right? You guys are all laughing because it is shown that if you smile for 10 seconds, regardless of your mood, your mood will increase. You will, you will, you will gain feelings of happiness. So I can manipulate your mood mechanically. I can also manipulate your mood musically. we go. Now, for some of you guys, this is a song that you're not familiar with, so I have one that might be a little bit more your speed. Yeah, see, everybody, your mood has been manipulated musically. Now, if all those things don't work, I could manipulate your mood medicinally. Now, for some of you, you're like, okay, what kind of an object lesson does he have for us now? <laughs> so I don't have, I don't have a, an actual medicine to give you. However, I did find something that might help. It's called a happy pill. So a happy pill is proven to give you the side effects of laughter, happiness, smiling, good mood, jubilation, pure delight, fits of giddiness, and joyfulness. And I just so happen to have such a happy pill right here. It's this M&M pack, and I got a man right down here, has his happy pills for the day, so guys, if it don't work, just let me know, uh, and we'll get a refund for him. So he's got happy pills for the rest of the day, so we can manipulate our mood. So when we hear the phrase, God just wants me to be happy, it sounds good, but really we're just dealing with feelings as it relates to that, and there's an underlying statement that our culture is trying to communicate to us, and it's this. Whatever makes me happy must be right. Whatever makes me unhappy must be wrong. I am not happy, so God is not good, and I know what makes me happy. You see, our culture is trying to say that we expect God to make our circumstances conducive for us to feel happy, for us to feel happy. That's the best case scenario. God's gonna make our circumstances conducive for us to feel happy. At the very least, he's gonna be okay with whatever I choose is going to make me most happy. This is what our culture wants to believe. In fact, the song that we heard at first, the lyrics go, if, it, if you feel like happiness is the truth, clap your hands if you know what happiness is to you. Clap your hands if you feel like that's what you want to do. It's all based on what's going to make me feel happy. I get to define it, and then I expect God to approve it. See, our culture throws off anything that would interfere with our pursuit of our defined happiness. And because God is good and is for you, he will be okay with whatever you choose to do. Whether or not it lines up with his word. Whether or not it's something that he approves of actually. You see, because God is really for you. That's what our culture wants us to believe. And whenever we hear that, we see that happiness is what we are owed or expected. God becomes our cosmic happiness dispenser with no questions asked, with no expectations to fulfill. Our happiness becomes ultimate, not God's glory. And so as we hear that, we, we think of some common instances. This is the way it may play out in life. Husband, if your wife no longer makes you happy, but another woman does, you can leave because God just wants you to be happy. Moms, dads, you, 
You feel more fulfilled and satisfied at work than you do being with your family. So you spend countless hours at the office rather than going home and seeing your children because really God just wants you to be happy. Young people, our culture says that it doesn't matter who you marry or what gender you identify as because at the end of the day, God just wants you to be happy. The list could go on and on. You could have millions of them in your mind right now that you're thinking of because what we oftentimes want is for our circumstances to cause our happiness. And if they aren't, it's God's job to get us out when in reality, God's desire and design is for our happiness to be found in knowing him so that we filter all of our circumstances, whether they're challenging or whether they're joyful, regardless of what they are, through his word and his promises. So how is it that we begin to unravel this in order to minister to our own hearts and then also to our neighbors? Well, we turn to God's word for that. So if you will, take your Bibles. If, there's, if you don't have one, the information will be on the screen, but there's also a Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to take that as our gift to you. But you have a turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 1. The psalmist here writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to help us understand life and godliness so that we could live in a way that pleases you. I pray that now our hearts will be softened to your word, that you would use it to challenge us and change us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So this psalm provides a striking contrast for us. Uh, it is a contrast between two kinds of people, the eternally, truly happy person and the eternally, truly not happy person. Both are after the same thing. One's going to find it, the other's not. And as you're sitting there thinking to yourself and maybe even nudging your wife or your, your, your friend that's next to you and saying, happy, like, I thought we were in Psalm 1. I don't see that word in there anywhere. Well, actually it is. Um, that first word, blessed, the first word of the Psalms, and it's used 26 times in the course of the Psalm, is actually the Hebrew word that actually means happy. It's literally translated as happy. So from the outset of this collection of writings, the writer is saying that God is not opposed to our happiness. So we don't come at this and say, well, God's just opposed to happiness in general. No, the psalmist wants us to learn how to become the truly happy person. How do we become the truly happy person? Notice what the psalmist says in verse one. He says, blessed is the man or happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The first principle that I believe that the Lord wants us to learn from this is, is this. Pursuing happiness apart from holiness leads 
to emptiness. Pursuing happiness apart from holiness leads to emptiness. You see, God isn't opposed to happiness. He's opposed to a particular kind of happiness. It's a kind of happiness that's really pseudo-happiness. It's kind that finds its ultimate satisfaction outside of the parameters of God's word. This is evident in the words that he uses to describe such a person. He talks about this person uh, in Psalm 1 as the person who is wicked. He says that the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. This, This person is described as wicked, as the sinner, as the scoffer. And what is so amazing about this information is that this is actually kind of a descent into emptiness. It's a picture of a person walking and then stopping and then sitting. He's progressing uh, in a situation or a system of a new belonging. And at at each level, there's a new distance that occurs. At each level, there's a new emptiness that occurs. And the psalmist tells us about this emptiness in the passage on the screen. It says that the wicked are not, like, are not so. He helps us to see that the end of this pursuit is ultimately perishing. It's ultimately being separated from God. It's, it's, it's described as the chaff of a grain. Now, chaff is the outer shell of the grain that, that was harvested. And whenever they would go and harvest the grain, they would take it to this place called the threshing floor. And what they would do is they had instruments that they would crush the grain to get the the actual good kernel away from the outer husk. And then what they would do is they would take these big shovels and they would scoop it up in the air and they would throw it up in the air and there was a breeze that would come by and the chaff, the outer shell was so light, so empty, so useless, so weightless that it would just be blown away by the wind to be carried away to destruction. Unlike the grain that was heavy enough, that was of substance that would fall to the ground and would be used by the farmer. And I find this to be true as we look at our culture and even in our own lives. The further we progress, the further we progress in disconnecting our minds and our hearts from holiness, the emptier and emptier we become. We see this picture over and over in the Bible. My wife Ashley and I have been reading through the Old Testament, so we started in Genesis and we're working our way through uh, in a year, so we're not quite as uh, adventurous or uh, exciting as some of you guys that are going to try and make it through in a year, but we're, we're pacing ourselves in the Old Testament in a year, and we've seen this countless times. We've seen this over and over in the Old Testament, the emptiness of those who would pursue happiness apart from holiness. And one striking example that we've seen really recently is that of the life of Solomon, We see it in 1 Kings chapter 11. It says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall neither enter into marriage with them, nor shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods." And at the end of this verse, in verse 4, it says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. He was a man who had everything. He had wisdom beyond all comparison. People from everywhere came to hear Solomon's wisdom. He had riches upon riches upon riches. 
And yet he still thought that he could find happiness outside of God's intended design. And we see that if in this, he pursued his own pleasure. He pursued his own happiness, and he ended up empty. It's recorded that he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Now, I can assure you that he didn't marry them all at once. No, it started with one. It started with one thought. It started with one counselor who said, oh, Solomon, that's probably an okay thing to do. It started with one person saying, Solomon, God just wants you to be happy. He just wants you to be happy. Marry as many of them as you can have. And it ended up in ruin for the second king. If you're here today and this is your life, or this was your life, you know the following to be true. The byproduct of a life lived pursuing happiness apart from holiness doesn't actually give you what you're looking for. It gives you shame instead. Instead of the happiness that you so wanted to find, it gives you guilt. And then the next thing is you, you try to find something else that's going to fix it, and so you end up in this downward spiral of looking for one thing after another that's going to give you what you're looking for, and at the end of the day, you are so much further, so much further from the beginning that you wanted to see happen. You are so far then from looking, finding that source of delight and joy that you find yourself hopeless, you find yourself empty, and you find yourself extremely unhappy. In a world that's desperately trying to find happiness outside of God's plan, do you know what we are not getting? We're not getting more happy people. If you look at the rates of suicide, depression, and anxiety, even with medicine, the rates are still going up. So even though we try to fill our lives with things that are going to make us happy, saying we can do whatever we want to, it always ends up empty. This was true before the pandemic, but it's even more so after this past year. You see, the trajectory of a life lived pursuing happiness apart from holiness always leads to emptiness. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you say, well, I'm not that far down the road, but you're starting to have those conversations in your mind. You're starting to entertain the ideas of, well, it's just about me and about what I want, and, and God's going to be okay with whatever it is. You've begun to reason with yourself that you can actually have happiness apart from holiness. God is saying to us, even now in this first verse of Psalm, of the Psalms, he's saying to us, no matter how much you try to fill your life with the pleasures of this world, apart from finding your true joy and satisfaction in me, you will always come up empty. And he's inviting you today to turn back to him. He's inviting you today to come and find your joy and your satisfaction and your life in him. Now, friends, our life isn't just about this disconnected pursuit of happiness that our culture wants us to embrace. No, it's also about holiness. But as a church, we have to be careful here because we can get into a, our own kind of version of did God really say with this next statement. Now, this one here is it's free with admission. So you guys are here. You were expecting one. I'm giving you an additional piece here for you. It's this, God isn't concerned about my happiness, just my holiness. 
Now, some of you are amening and saying, yeah, we need some more holiness in this world. We need some more people that are doing the right thing. Some of you are hearing, oh, great. Here we go. Here we go again. He's just going to rain on my parade. He's going to tell me that God doesn't want me to be happy. You see, the challenge is we've built this false dichotomy in our lives. We have this dichotomy that either says, either I can be hell-bound and happy, or I can be miserable and holy. We've heard the testimony that says, you know, I used to be happy, but now I'm holy. <laughs> and, and you hear this, and this is what the world thinks about the church. They think that God is just this cosmic fun sucker that wants us to be miserable, but he wants you to be holy. And so, is this what God wants? Did God really say that? Did God really say that he doesn't care about my happiness, just my holiness? God's word helps us with this one as well. It helps us to understand that while happiness without holiness leads to emptiness, pursuing holiness apart from happiness leads to heaviness. Pursuing holiness apart from happiness leads to heaviness. Notice what the psalmist says about the happy person. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Do you see these two things? He delights in something, and at the same time, he is identified as somebody who is righteous or somebody who is holy. But this isn't how we often think about obedience. We don't think about the law of the Lord in terms of delight, in terms of satisfaction and enjoyment. No, whenever we begin to talk about holiness, our, our voices start to change. Like you start talking in decibels and, and, and with uh, octaves that are not natural to your normal voice. Your face changes from smiling to like nothing. And, and, you, and people see this and they're like, delight's not, we can't talk about happiness in the church. We can't talk about delight in the church. That's forbidden. That's for the world to do. That's not what the passage says. It says that the person who is holy is the person who delights. See, what we, we find is that when we remove happiness from holiness, pursuing the things of God becomes a drudgery to us. It becomes a drudgery. It becomes what the world believes Christianity is actually all about. And I'm, I'm not 100% sure that all people look at holiness as, as something that is unattractive or unpleasant. What I think happens is that the holiness that they see is really legalism masquerading itself as holiness and being pitched to them as what holiness actually is. You see, the holiness that people often see in our world is the holiness that is much more akin to what the Pharisees promoted in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 23, it says that they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They see a kind of holiness that's described in Luke chapter 18. It says that Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And this is the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What we see is, is this picture of a group of self-righteous people who are critical, spirited, who look down on others for their failures and they themselves lack the joy that they tell everybody else that they're supposed to have. The joy of the Lord is our strength and yet they, they are burdened because they've disconnected happiness from holiness. One writer expects, expresses it this way. He says, offer people a choice between being hungry and thirsty or having food and drink, and their choice will be obvious. Never mind that the meal may be laced with cyanide or the drink injected with arsenic. Any offer of happiness with or without holiness will always win over an offer of holiness apart from happiness. I observed earlier that the world pursues happiness apart from holiness and they don't end up truly happy people. I would, I would suppose to you that in the church, we try to persuade people to pursue holiness apart from happiness. And do you know what we don't typically get? Truly holy people. We don't typically get truly holy people. No, we get bitter people. We get critical people. We get burdened people. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're here and you're doing all the right things. You're, you're reading your Bible every single day for hours on end. You're praying and praying and praying. You're giving with generosity. You're, you're in a small group. You're doing all the things. You're still lacking that abiding sense of joy and delight and happiness in your life. You feel heavy. Not because there's sin in the world, but because you feel like you aren't measuring up to God's standard. You don't feel like you're doing enough stuff. And in your mind, there's got to be one more thing I can do to make God happy with me. There's got to be one more thing that I can do to make him embrace me, to make him have me. And if I check all the right boxes, then I'm going to truly be happy. You see, there's a difference between duty and delight. Duty says, I'll work until I earn my own happiness. Delight says, somebody else has earned my happiness for me. I can enjoy all that God has done because Jesus has earned my standing. Jesus has earned my happiness. And so I can now enjoy all the freedom that God has for me in his word because I don't have to earn it. I don't have to work for it. I can delight in it and obey because I love God and not because I'm working for him to love me. So does God want us to be happy? Yes. Does God want us to be holy? Yes. Are these two mutually exclusive? No, they're not. We see this in his word because if pursuing happiness apart from holiness leads to emptiness and pursuing holiness apart from happiness leads to heaviness, I want to propose to you today that pursuing happiness through holiness leads to wholeness. Pursuing happiness through holiness leads to wholeness. And this is what our world needs. This is what our churches need. This is what we need. Again, we're not just talking about feelings, right? I've already, I've already proved that I can manipulate your feelings pretty easily here today. We're not just talking about feelings, we're talking about 
uh, an internal sense of joy, gladness, and delight in the midst of whatever circumstances we face, that there is an actual possibility, an actual reality that these exist. Because God does indeed want us to be happy like he is happy. And God indeed does want us to be holy like he is holy. And both can be a reality when we pursue our happiness through our holiness. Notice what the psalmist says in verses one and two. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It is this man, it is this woman who rejects the worldly happiness, who rejects the counsel, the empty counsel of the wicked. It is this man, this woman, who knows in their heart what Psalm 16, 4 says, that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall only multiply. It is this one who delights in the word of the Lord, this one who spends time regularly going to the the ever-flowing, nourishing source from God's word, who shapes their thoughts, their intentions, and their actions around his word. It's this man, it's this woman, it's this boy, this girl, of whom the Lord says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So if the wicked are like the chaff, they're light, they're empty, the happy person who delights in the word of the Lord is steadfast, they're immovable, they're unshakable. The roots of this person run deep, not because of themselves, but because they are being sustained each and every day by an ever-flowing stream an eternal stream of water from the Lord. Like this tree, they have been planted by this stream of water. They're taking in the nourishment of God's word. They are constantly refreshed. They are constantly encouraged. They are constantly strengthened. Their life is constantly yielding fruit. In no matter what season it is, their life is yielding fruit. It's quite a stark contrast between those who go their own way It is a picture of wholeness. It's a picture of life. It's a picture of blessing. What kind of world would we live in if believers exuded this kind of life-giving reality in our everyday interactions? C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, how little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before a year's end? Think about it. The happiness that the world seeks jumps from one thing to another, never finding satisfaction. The believer that is rooted and grounded in the word of God can face the trials of each and every day confident that God's word has a rich supply of everything that they need for life and godliness. It's amazing to us as we look at this. Some of you are here and you think, man, that sounds really good if you don't have any problems. If you don't really have any trials in your life, that would be really easy, but you don't know my situation. How dare you say that I can actually be happy? Well, friend, the the Bible isn't unaware of your situation. It's not unaware of what's going on in the real world, and the psalmist himself helps us to see this. He says that the one that is planted by the streams of water, is the one whose leaf does not wither. Now, he recognizes that there's challenges in our lives. 
He doesn't deny the existence of difficulty. However, he shows that in the midst of suffering, there is a source that is different from whether or not there is challenge in our circumstance. There's a source that is outside of us that provides the kind of nourishment that we need. And oftentimes, we think suffering, we think of suffering, we always think that it's never God's plan. But friends, oftentimes, suffering is a means that God uses in our lives to produce something in us that would have otherwise not been produced. And whenever we think about this, I I think that these, uh, these happen in our lives all the time, and the Bible calls them trials. There are things that I never would have known about trusting the Lord for his provision had not I lost my job the week that we were to bring Isaiah, our oldest son, into our home. There are things that I would never have learned about compassion or, or trusting that the, the Lord is merciful and a God of all comfort. If we, my wife Ashley and I, had not experienced the difficulty and trial and heartbreak of a miscarriage, there are things that happen in our lives that would not, we would not experience, we would not know how to minister to other people if we had not gone through those circumstances. And all those circumstances are designed by God. And in the midst of them, we can find true joy and satisfaction if we are rooted in his word, if we are rooted near to the Lord. Today for us, even in the midst of your trial, if you're walking through a difficult season, whether it's cancer, whether it's a trial with a child, whether it's a job situation, God invites you. He invites you to come to him. He invites you to say all those things, they are difficulties, they are challenges, they are heavy in our lives, but we can still find joy. This is why Paul can say that we are sorrowful, yet we're always rejoicing. This is why Paul can say that there is a light momentary affliction that is preparing for him an eternal weight of glory because he looks to the things that are unseen, not to the things that are seen. You see, God is desiring to work in you something that you would not have otherwise been able to experience. And your leaf will not wither as we stay near to the Lord. Now, as we said at the outset, we want this series not only to be able to minister to your own heart, but also for you to be able to encourage those around you, to be able to help others walk through this statement. God just wants you to be happy. I want to propose to you that that if you are seeking happiness, you are not seeking something that's unnatural. In fact, Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, says this. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Every person seeks happiness. Every person. If in fact God designed and wired us to find our greatest enjoyment in him, Every person is looking for happiness. So for us as believers, brothers and sisters, you have a common ground with every single person you talk to. They are all seeking happiness. Here's the thing for you. You know where to find it. While they go to and fro, whether they go from this thing to that thing, trying to find something that's going to ultimately leave them empty, you know where true joy is where true happiness, where true satisfaction can be found. 
And it's only in a right relationship with Jesus Christ. It's only being found in him. So as you walk through your days, I want to encourage you. Three things. They're not going to be on the screen, so you want to write them down or type them in or whatever it is that you want to do. Three ways that you can proclaim this truth in a world that is seeking happiness. Number one, share the truth. Share that true happiness can be found in a restored relationship with Jesus. Share that true happiness can be found in a restored relationship with Jesus. Psalm 32, one says this, blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happiness can only be found, true happiness, whenever we are in a restored relationship with Jesus. Number two, seek to grow in your own happiness by regularly delighting yourself in the treasure trove of God's word. Delighting yourself in God's word. Go to it as your life, as an opportunity to learn, not just as a thing to do or a box to check, but go to it knowing that God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it gives you everything you need for life and godliness, that the, the psalmist say that it's sweeter than honeycomb to the taste, that this is where we find delight in knowing God and knowing what he would have for us to do. Lastly, show in your attitudes and actions, your attitudes and actions that happiness is not contingent upon circumstances, but can be experienced at all times. If you have to tell yourself before you walk out the door, I'm going to smile for 10 seconds in every interaction that I have, do that. We want our faces, we want our actions to exude joy. We want them to show that it truly is a blessing to be in Christ that is truly the most joyful place to be, that there is no other joy that compares. There is no other happiness that compares to knowing Christ. Friends, our world wants us to believe that God just wants you to be happy. But the happiness that they want is, is a happiness that exalts yourself above God and his word. It exalts your desires above all else. But what they don't tell you is that pursuing that life that pursuing happiness in that way always leads to emptiness. It leads you further and further from the true happiness that you truly want. Yet God, in his mercy and in his grace, offers himself to you in the finished work of Jesus to have a happiness that doesn't just end here, but that it extends through all eternity. Where we gather around the throne of God, and, and I assure you, there will be no gloomy faces on that day in the presence of the Lord. There will be no people who are sad in that moment. They will all exalt and exult and worship and sing and rejoice in the salvation that our God has accomplished for us. In a kingdom where righteousness and holiness reigns, there will be joy and joy everlasting. The psalmist says in Psalm 1611, says, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. True happiness is available to you. True happiness is available for you. And it's found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And friends, God really did say that. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that there is joy to be found. We thank you that you You've given us an opportunity even now to experience joy no matter where we are. I pray that 
as a body, that we would delight in your word, that we would spurn the counsel of the wicked, that we would be people whose faces and lives exude that the joy of the Lord is our strength, that we find in you the greatest treasure, the greatest delight, and the greatest happiness. Because, Lord, we recognize that you do want us to be happy and you do want us to be holy. Would you give us endurance to pursue those things? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If this message blessed you and you now have a desire to follow Jesus, I encourage you to go to scottshill.org slash next steps so that we can follow up with you. Also, if you like the message, feel free to share it on social media with your friends and family. God bless.